uh, just a reminder about uh, Camp Arete coming up in a little over two weeks. And be in prayer for Camp Arete, be in prayer for Vacation Bible School, which comes after that, as well as for the prep school teachers and then the uh, prayer for the trips going to Egypt and Israel. And then just a reminder, the memorial service for Ursula Kemp will be Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock at George H. Lewis uh, Funeral Home over on Bering Drive. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with God walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, walking in the truth. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful for your mercy, for your goodness to us, for your grace, for your love toward us that is exemplified in our salvation, that you demonstrated that love by sending your Son to enter into human history and to die on the cross for our sins. And Father, we're thankful our salvation is just based on something as simple as faith where there's no merit involved on our part because all of the merit is in the work of Christ on the cross. Now, Father, we pray tonight that as we study uh, some obscure passages in Scripture, difficult for uh, many to interpret, fitting it within a framework of our understanding of Scripture and the angelic conflict, that you will help us to understand these things and you'll open our eyes to a greater understanding of the role that we play in the, in the angelic conflict as witnesses, as those who testify to your grace and demonstrate your justice and righteousness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's do a little review. Talk through what's going on here as we are in the midst of a sub-series, as it were, as part of our study of the Davidic Covenant. And so we got to Psalm 89, which is a uh, it's a meditation on the Davidic covenant, but it is a prayer that is a demonstration of the faith rest drill, where the writer of the of the psalm is praying that God would fulfill his covenant, a time when he sees the Davidic family under attack. As I said, I think this probably relates to the time when God was splitting the kingdom, the ten nations in the north, away from the southern uh, two kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin. And so he is praying that God will fulfill his promise to David and continue to keep a Davidic heir upon the throne. And in the midst of that, as we're studying through uh, the Davidic covenant, he mentions some examples of God's power. So let's not lose the forest for the trees here, that this is an example of God's omnipotence, that God has done incredible things in the past, 
and will in the future. So there's nothing too great for God to do. And in Psalm 89.10, he mentions this creature Rahav, not Rahab, even though it, in English the words are spelled the same. In Hebrew, they're different. This is not the name of Rahab, the prostitute, in Joshua chapter 2. This is Rahav, the uh, sea monster related to Leviathan. The term is actually used four times in Job 9.13 and 26.12, our passage in Psalm 89.10 and in Isaiah 51.9. The noun has the idea of arrogance, so this is the arrogant one. And if it were translated, that would be the way to do it. But it's translated a variety of ways in different versions and everything, which just lends to uh, lends to confusion. In fact, I'd be interested to find out how this is translated. And I've asked a couple of people in the congregation who are using other than English translations to let me know how these words that we're studying are translated in those other languages. So we saw last time that God created all living things, including Rahab. This is a foundational reality that God created these literal creatures, and then they are co-opted by the pagans and used in their pagan mythology. But at the very beginning, God has created these creatures, and they are designed a certain way, and God will use that. But they're not inherently mythological creatures. And when we see some of the terms like Leviathan, related to the tanin. Sometimes the word tanin is translated as dragon. Uh, we might translate it a dinosaur. We're going to see some interesting things uh, there when we get to it, which reminds me to check something in my notes there. And these are real creatures that then pick up a symbolic meaning. second thing we saw that God in his omniscience designed those creatures with the form and function that they had, knowing that they would be used on the one hand by pagans, be distorted, corrupted in pagan mythology, but also that he would use it in his word to describe something that is going on in the spiritual realm. Now that's a point that is missed in a lot of the articles that you read about this, and it changes ever so subtly, but ever so importantly, why how we're going to understand these things. We have these terms that are used in the, in the Hebrew, and generally they're classified as terms related to sea monsters. The yam is the Hebrew word for sea. Sometimes it simply means the salt sea. Remember, there's no salt sea in the new heavens and new earth. And the absence of the salt sea is often thought by those who are more uh, conservative in their interpretation to indicate that there is something about the salt sea and the way it is used in in uh, during our life on the earth that this is represents the uh, represents sin corruption chaos and that in turn was used and perverted into in uh, pagan mythology so the yam represents not an individual as much as a corporate entity, the dwelling place of those who are the source of the chaos. And that would 
Chaos was introduced into creation by the sin of Satan and the sin of the one-third of the angels that followed Satan. The second word is the word tanin, sometimes translated sea creatures, sometimes translated sea monsters, sometimes translated dragon. So we have to look at those. And and how these terms are used and to whom they refer differs context to context. So each time you have to take a look at it. Then Leviathan, which we studied last time, which seems to be related to a more so to a dragon or a creature of that nature, huge, something that man cannot control at all in any way. Then we have Rahav, who is related to Leviathan. We'll look at those passages in in uh, a few minutes. Uh, this is the focus of our study. And then Behemoth, who's only mentioned in Job, and this is an extremely large creature. Sometimes it's been identified as various creatures we see today, but it was probably some sort of, of, of creature that did not survive long beyond the flood, or maybe maybe it did, and there were still some remnants of behemoths in the uh, ancient world. So I devised this little chart for us, that God first creates all creatures, including Yom, Leviathan, Behemoth, Tanin, Rahav, and they're designed with a purpose. This is summarizing what I just said. The literal is that they're referred to in the Bible as actual historical creatures, but also with a view to what we have in the right column, that they're, they were used by pagan mythology to represent their pagan deities. In the Old Testament and New Testament both confirm that there are demons behind the deities, the gods and goddesses of all the different mythological systems are all empowered, and they all represent different demonic forces. So God, in, in, in his omniscience, knows both of these things are true, and so he oversees its particular use. Now then we got into looking at various terms uh, and how they were used in, these, in the Scripture. And we started in Job last time, and we looked at the purpose of Job as the sort of a setting of a trial where Job is the evidence of God's grace and Satan accuses God of giving Job so much so that Job will worship him and Job will be obedient. And so the Lord gives him, in chapter 1, permission to test Job, but he can't touch him. He can't take away his health. So he takes away his children, his, his uh, all of his possessions. He wipes out most of his uh, of the details of life that people rely on for happiness and prosperity and joy in life, and yet uh, Job refuses to curse God. And so Satan comes back and says, well, let me, let me attack him personally now. Let me take care of his health. And so there is a, uh, a second attack, and this time Job's health is attacked, and he's absolutely miserable. He has these various uh, skin sores, and he's scraping at his at his body in order to uh, take care of the uh, terrible pain and the itching and everything that that comes along with that. And then we get into these various passages related to Leviathan, uh, where it should be translated the proud one, such as in Job 9.13, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the, crouch the helper's 
of Rahav. And the New King James translates it, allies of the proud. And we could translate the allies of the proud one. And the proud one is Lucifer. Now, what we see as we look at these particular passages is that there is a connection between Rahav and Leviathan. And so in Isaiah 27.1, we read, In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. And there the word for serpent is Nahash. Leviathan is then described in the next line as the twisted serpent. And he will slay the reptile, and that's the word tanin. Sometimes that's translated as monster. And as we see in the NET, makes a note in the translation in the text that's according to Ugaritic and some other translations that this is translated in some some of these texts as as dragon. So as we look at these passages, we see a connection that Rahav is the proud one. We'll hold that. We see in Isaiah 27.1, Leviathan is identified as a serpent, a fast-moving serpent, a wiggling, a squiggling uh, serpent. And then it parallel to that is he will kill the sea monster. So the Lord will punish Leviathan and kill the sea monster. So the Tanin are separate and distinct in this passage from Leviathan. Both Leviathan, I believe, represent Satan, and the Tanin represent uh, the demons. So we're going to see this, this connection develop. Now, remember, in Revelation 12, 9, and throughout chapter 12 and 13, numerous references are found there referring to the dragon, who is identified specifically in verse 9, as the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. In Revelation 20, verse 2, at the, after the tribulation is over and the Lord returns, he laid hold of the dragon. This is one of the angels. He lays hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. So in Revelation, we get this key that the terms dragon, serpent, Satan, devil are all related to the same individual. So it's interesting as we look at the imagery that we have in different kinds of mythology. For example, in Mexico, you have Quetzalcoatl, who is the a serpent deity. And anytime we see the serpent show up in mythology, we should always be thinking this is some sort of perversion or reference to to Satan. And so Quetzalcoatl is worshipped. And on the right you see some uh, artifacts from Aztec temples uh, giving you a, the image as they uh, pictured the, the, um, the, the serpent. And then on the left in the next couple of images I will show you are pictures of uh, modern representation of this feathered or plumed serpent. And here's one that I thought was quite dramatic and very colorful. 
and has very evil eyes. Have you noticed how they have eyes that look like this now on some cars with their headlights? If you look in your rearview mirror, you'll see that they're they're being quite uh, graphic in the way they're drawing headlights on some cars. But in our culture, anyway, we look at that as a representation of evil. But the whole uh, depiction here is quite colorful and attractive. And I think it's interesting that in now in the development of of study of dinosaurs and the evolutionary theory that they're saying, no, they, they're not reptiles that came, uh, that are total reptiles, but they're transition in some way between reptiles and birds. And so here we have it pictured in mythology, plumed serpents that are not at all unlike uh, dinosaurs, certain types of dinosaurs. And here's another depiction, and you know, I have of the opinion that the Nahash, the serpent that shows up in the garden, is not some small little snake, but is something more on the order of what we see depicted here, something quite large and quite grand and quite beautiful. And here we have a depiction from some uh, science fiction uh, art related to Quetzalcoatl. Now, in the sovereign plan of God under the category of this was pure coincidence, uh, this last week uh, I got an email from Sandy that, that uh, from a creation, a CMI, Creation Ministries International, and they're a creationist organization out of, uh, out of um, Australia. And they had an article in there entitled Leonardo's Dragon. I don't know if any of you have, have read that, but it starts off saying that this year in the month of May 2019 is the 500th anniversary of the death of Leonardo da Vinci, whose dates were from 1452 to 1519. Now, at this same time, there's an exhibit in the United Kingdom's Royal Collection Trust of... 12 uh, different, uh, they uh, have an exhibit of Leonardo's drawings in 12 different locations in the UK. But there's one drawing that is causing quite a stir. It is this drawing. You may not see it real well here, but it has the whole thing. We have cats in several places, and we have some dogs and some other uh, creatures there. And it's called Cats, Lions, and a dragon, drawn somewhere around 1517 to 1518. And the author of the piece, it's a short article, says, you may begin to guess what the fuss is about once you hear the title. It's a pen and ink picture vividly showing cats and lions in various lifelike poses. The note at the bottom of the drawing reads, quote, of, this is what Leonardo wrote, of flexion and extension. This animal species, of which the lion is the prince because of its spinal column, which is flexible. So it's anatomically correct, and he points out that what is clear is that there are uh, live animals that are in front of Leonardo that he is using as models for these anatomical studies. He writes, Leonardo would have been able to observe ordinary cats easily, and, quote, lions were well enough known in Italy at the time 
They were, for example, kept in a cage behind the Palazzo della Signoria in Florence as one of the symbols of the city. He even built a moving robot lion as a gift to entertain King Francis I of France. Now, all of the drawings of the cats and lions on here all um, lead to the same conclusion, that is that they were drawn from direct observation. However, the author points out, when it comes to the dragon in the picture, the Royal Collection Trust states, quote, the dragon was added simply as a still as a still more extreme case, parenthesis, as limited only by the artist's imagination rather than by real anatomy. So the issue here is, are these a study of actual living creatures, the lions and the cats, and then why would Leonardo stick a mythical creature that's just the product of his imagination in the middle. See, this is the dragon. It's located right here in this picture. And that is a blown up look. So you see that there's some interesting things about the tail uh, coming out. And you see some interesting things about the uh, anatomy of the hind legs and some other things that he's going to relate to here. So he says, or they say, the Royal Collection Trust, that this is limited only by the artist's imagination. It's not real anatomy. And the author here then says, surely this is a pure assumption and a huge one at that. It appears to be based solely upon an evolutionary understanding of history, which alleges that dinosaurs or dragons died out 65 million years ago, never living with mankind. It would make much more sense to be consistent and also attribute the dragon drawing to direct observation rather than the drawing of an imaginary animal amongst real ones. Now, most of you are saying, well, so what? Well, let me point out a couple of other things the author brings out as he's describing this. He says that... Um, that there, and he quotes from a uh, dinosaur artifact researcher named Vance Nelson that this was a typical depiction in Europe of what used to be classified in evolutionary dinosaur terms as a prosauropod. They are now classified in various groups within larger groups, the basal sauropodomorphs. Though the head was the typical stylization of the 16th century, the morphology nevertheless makes it easy to identify this at, within this group of dinosaurs. What's interesting about dinosaurs that fall within this group, such as the Lessensauridae, is that their front and rear legs had a distinctive bend as opposed to straight up and down columnar limbs. They also had five claws, just as depicted by Leonardo, see the right front foot. Uh, could such particularly, or excuse me, see the right rear foot that's down, that's right here, right rear foot. Could such particular detail be fabricated by Leonardo's imagination? Had he seen such a fossil? Had he understood the morphology of such a fossil of a dinosaur? Not at all. Uh, these things had not been discovered at that point. He goes on to point 
point out that uh, Leonardo's re- rendering of the dragon with a coiled tail is not uncommon throughout history, and it may have been an artistic device. However, noting that the first portion of the tail attached to the body is relatively stiff, just like other sauropod dinosaurs, there are other options. It may be that some dinosaurs had a prehensile, that's a grasping tail, such as some lizards today, easily able to make the same shape as in his drawing. So it's first stiff, and then it, it coils back on itself. And he, said, he points out that the, how can all of this just be the product of his imagination? And here is an example of the uh, type of dinosaur that he was talking about earlier. I just bring that to point. I'm not sure how all of this should be taken, but I do know, as I pointed out last time from this book, After the Flood by Bill Cooper, that there's a tremendous amount of evidence from the early and late Middle Ages that these drag, of these dragon myths that originated during those times and evidence that there were actually dinosaurs, or i.e. dragons, that threatened villages and are at the root of these uh, hero stories. So that just gives us a little bit of an idea that maybe something more is going on here than just uh, pure imagination, and the imagination, I think, is all on the part of the uh, evolutionists. So in the ancient world, what you had was uh, also the use of the word uh, tanin, and the note in the NET I thought was interesting as it's uh, describing why they're translating things the way they did on uh, Isaiah twenty-seven, Isaiah twenty-seven thirteen. Did we did we get there yet? No, I don't think so. We'll get there in a minute. Okay. So in Job, now watch this. Job 26.12 says, He quieted the sea with his power. God is in control of Yom. Yom represents chaos. So there's a double meaning here. God controls even chaos. God is omnipotent. And by his understanding, he shattered, and the NKJV says storm, but the Hebrew is Rahav. So again, this is demonstrating the power of God. So Rahav as Rahab is used and Leviathan is used in the Psalms and other places, it's always used in examples of God's control uh, over these forces. And in the mythology of the day, this had become normal and the imagery had entered into the normal use of language. So this is just simply borrowed, as I've given illustrations in the past, From you find the same thing today and in the uh, Protestant Reformation period where there'd be allusions to um, there'd be allusions to these various mythological uh, gods and goddesses and personages, Apollo and Zeus and whatever, and none of those Christian writers believed those were literal or accurate, but they knew that it communicated as an, an, as an analogy to their audience. So here we have God's power demonstrated in verse 12, he shatters Rahab. When did that happen? When did he quiet the sea? Job is writing here. So this isn't depicting something in the future. This is depicting something in the past. A couple of options might be the flood. 
It could also be at the time of, of creation. It says, By his spirit he adorned the heavens, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Now, the use of spirit there adorning the heavens is reminiscent of language in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1. And that's what we see in a number of these passages we're going to go to is that it's difficult to pin down exactly when he's talking about because the language depicts one uh, depicts or, or often is reminiscent of creation language in Genesis 1, but sometimes, as we'll see in Psalm 74, it also is language related to the Exodus event. So in the other translations, for example, in Job 26.13, where we have his spirit, he adorned the heavens, his hand produced the... Oh, in, in uh, 26, here we had... I've got a duplicate slide here. That's the problem. These are all perfect tenses in the Hebrew, which can refer to something that happened in the past. Okay, Job 3.8 talks about arousing, arousing Leviathan. We looked at that last week. So a Leviathan is treated as an actual uh, creature that man cannot control and that brings incredible damage. So we begin to look at Leviathan the dragon, and... At the end of chapter 41, which we looked at, uh, he's identified as the king over all the children of pride. So God, in the midst of Isaiah 41, is demonstrating that he's the one who is in control of Leviathan. And he is also the one who makes the sea, brings the sea under control. So all of these things are designed to teach God being in control. That brought us to where we stopped last time in Psalm 74, 14. Now let's just look at Psalm 74. Turn with me there and let's just look at the context and see what is happening in Psalm 74. This is a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph lived at the time of, of David. Uh, he is writing a psalm where he is calling upon God. He, too, is exercising the faith rest drill, and he's calling upon God to deliver Israel from some crisis. And in this uh, hymn, this psalm, he is going to call upon God to... Uh, to destroy the serpents and Leviathan, and, and that he has destroyed the serpents and Leviathan. He's divided the sea by his strength as an example of his omnipotence. So he uh, talks about God's victory over his enemies in verses 3 and 4 and following. And then when we get down to verse uh, 13, we read, You divided the sea by your strength. Now that's language that is very reminiscent of Genesis 1, that God separated the waters from the land. But it is more precisely, I think, related to, uh, to the Exodus event. But the language could be chosen in such a way to make us think of both, even though the main emphasis is on uh, the Exodus event. 
you divided the sea, and it shows God's power. There's always a polemic there against the gods of the, the, uh, of the pagans. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents. See, sometimes they're sea monsters, sometimes they're dragons. You know, the translations muddy the water by always using different terms. You broke the heads of the sea serpents, the tanin in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So this is clearly using battle metaphor to demonstrate God's victory over the sea. And, and, and this is the same language that we find in uh, Exodus 24:21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back to, by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So he uses the same language like as you find in Genesis chapter 1. And then in Ezekiel 29.3, we have the same kind of reference, again, to the Tanin, uh, where Ezekiel writes, this, Ezekiel 29 is the first of the, uh, the, uh, the judgment um, judgment visions against Egypt that will be fulfilled in the future. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then the Pharaoh is called a sea monster, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers. Now, this word tanin is not specific. We'll see that it's translated just sea creatures in places. But here it clearly is identifying him as a specific kind, possibly a crocodile. That's a common interpretation here because the Pharaoh was identified with the various gods in the pantheon of Egypt. And so the crocodile was a picture of the, of the Nile god. And so he's, uh, God is referring to him in that way that you think you're a god and you think you control everything and you think you control the river and that the river is your own, but I have made it myself. So it's a clear polemic against the, the, the uh, mythology of the Egyptians. We see it again in Ezekiel 32, two, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the Pharaoh king of Egypt and say to him, you are like a young lion among the nations. And you are like a monster, again using that word tanin. You're like a monster in the seas, bursting forth in your rivers, troubling the waters with your feet, and fouling their rivers. So it's a real indictment of, of the Pharaoh. But there's something else behind this that we see in the other passages where tanin is used. It's a reference, to, an allusion to the demons. And, it's in, and I believe this is indicating that the real power behind the Pharaoh was demonic, and it was Satan, and that connects all these dots, so that Pharaoh is then identified with these various terms, as we'll see from Tanin to Rahav, because the real power behind Pharaoh was Satan and the demons. So back to Psalm 74. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So that's a pretty graphic image there. But in Exodus 14.30, after the uh, armies of Pharaoh are drowned in the Red Sea, 
We read, so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. You know, they weren't going to eat them, but this is, they've destroyed them, and so that's the imagery there is given them for food. That is, now they are free, and it's a picture of God sustaining them uh, into the wilderness by destroying their enemies. In the NET Bible, it says, you crush the heads of Leviathan. So Leviathan is connected now to the armies of Pharaoh. Tanin was the other term that was used. So now we see that Leviathan, Tanin, and we'll see that Rahab are all applied to Pharaoh, and all of these demonic forces then become uh, terms that are related to uh, describing the demonic and satanic power behind the Pharaoh of Egypt. So the NET translates it, you crushed the heads of Leviathan, you fed him to the people who live along the coast. NASB 95 translates it, you crushed the heads of Leviathan, you gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. Quite a difference between people who live along the coast and the creatures of the wilderness. I think the NASB is much better there. Then we will uh, look down and see that oh, I want to make a couple of other comments on, on uh, Psalm, Psalm 74. Alan Ross makes some interesting observations here that, in, uh, that the thrust of the psalm is to demonstrate the overwhelming power of God so that the people in their present crisis, when Asaph is writing, will gain confidence because of what God has done for Israel in the past. He says there's some question whether the next few verses refer to creation or the exodus from Egypt. It's not entirely possible to separate them since some of the language of creation is applied for the formation of Israel as well. The psalmist seems to start with creation but moves to the exodus experience and in this description, he makes use of expressions that were used in pagan mythology. They can't, cannot simply be explained as common poetic expression, for it's too specific. And then he goes on to explain basically what I have uh, said, that the, the, this, these pagan myths depict a primordial bottle, battle between the gods and chaos and these sea monsters. But the reality is that in eternity past, when Satan is fell, there was a battle between God and the fallen angels, and that is what's being alluded to here in the metaphor of the of these uh, of these myths. There's no validation of those particular myths. So when we look at Psalm 74. We see that it's primarily about Israel and the problems that they are facing, so that tells us that there may be language that alludes to creation, but it's primarily speaking about the event of the Exodus. We also see that in in Psalm or in Exodus 14:21, as we looked saw a minute ago, that it uses that same language of dividing the sea. And then in Exodus uh, 29.3 and Psalm, or excuse me, 29.3 and Ezekiel 32.2 also speaks of uh, Pharaoh as a Tanin. And Psalm 74.14 speaks of it as Leviathan. So you see all of these come together here 
and helps us see how this language is used to depict the demonic forces that are behind, in this case, the king of, of Egypt. Now, when we come to Psalm 104, we find another use of Leviathan. And here I think that this is simply a reference to a literal creature. There's no allusion here to Leviathan as a representative of satanic power, satanic forces, or anything of that nature. In Psalm 104.26, we read, There the ships sail about. This is talking about on the ocean, on the sea. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. As if God made this literal creature Leviathan is just as an example of his creative power and created Leviathan is his plaything, as it were. In the NET, it translates Leviathan as the whale. You lose the whole sense of what's going on here if you translate Leviathan as the whale because it disconnects it from all the other uses of Leviathan in the Old Testament. In the New American Standard, it also translates it as, as Leviathan and then translates the last phrase, which you have formed to sport in it, which indicates that idea that God created. He, he's having fun with his creatures and with his creation. Then we come to Leviathan's use in Isaiah 27.1, which is a very significant passage. And we've mentioned this already. I'll deal with it a little more here. It starts off with the phrase, in that day. And so often in Isaiah, when we read the phrase, in that day, it's talking about that future time when God is going to restore Israel to the land. It's referring to that future time that is the day of the Lord. That would refer to the at least the end part of the tribulation prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming. In that day, God is going to destroy the forces of Satan. So in that day, the Lord with his severe sword, and we saw uh, and when I started this study that when uh, the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he's depicted having a, a sword of the word coming out of his mouth. So here we have uh, him coming with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. So this is yet future. The passages in Job are talking about something that happened in the past. Here it's talking about something in the future. It will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent. Both times this is Nahash, the same word used for the serpent in the garden. But here it's depicted as Leviathan, a great uh, monster, not a common serpent as we think of today. And then the last line, he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. This is the phrase, a tanin, it's plural. So the sea here is yam. This depicts not just the sea itself, but it depicts the sea as a representative of all the demonic forces, and those are representative of the tanin who are in that corporate entity of the sea, the corporate entity of the fallen angels. In the NASB, it translates it, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan the twisted serpent, and he will kill not the reptile, he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. 
That's how this word is understood in a lot of uh, cognate languages. And then we have the N-E-T that translates it in the last line is just a sea monster. So which is it? Sea monster, dragon, or reptile? Best uh, language from uh, the Ugaritic text is that idea of a of a dragon. Now this takes us back to looking at this word tanin, where we first see it back in Job chapter seven verse uh, twelve, where Job is referring to himself in a rhetorical question: "Am I a sea? That is, am I a yam? That is chaos that had to be controlled. So it's more than just the sea." God put a boundary on the sea, which is the sand, but it's a picture of the fact that God controls the chaos. So there's a polemic there against all of the chaos brought into the universe through Satan's fall. He says, am I a sea or a, and here it's translated, a sea serpent, tanin, that you set a guard over me. Now, the first time we see the word tanin mentioned, it's in Genesis 1.21. So God created great sea creatures. So it seems to have a generic meaning, but it is also used with specificity in a number of these passages where you have Leviathan and Rahab, uh, pharaohs called Tanin. Uh, This is important for understanding that it has a demonic symbolism uh, to it. We also find it in the episode where uh, pharaohs, Magicians come out and they turn their uh, staffs into tanin, into these, uh, and it's translated there as a serpent, uh, these uh, creatures. So it's a broad term. So it's, uh, some I've read say this should really be translated a dragon. So it's not something that is necessarily a small uh, serpent or a cobra but something that is much greater than that. So there's something going on here, and it indicates the demonic power that they had. And Satan, I mean, and uh, Moses is able to uh, create from his staff also the same kind of creature that destroyed the others. Again, a polemic that God is superior to the God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is superior to the gods of the Egyptians. So we have the use here in Job 7.12 related to the sea and the sea serpent. In the NET translates it, uh, am I a sea or the creature of the deep? Just, I'm just using these as an example to show how Uh, how they're translated, and I think confusion enters in because people don't see the connections from the Hebrew. And the NIV translates Tanin, a monster of the deep. One of the commentaries on Job writes, am I yam or Tanin, just uses those, uh, brings those words over from the Hebrew and personifies them. Another uh, author of a commentary on Isaiah translates it M-I-C, not D-C, but M-I-C, bringing in that whole idea of chaos. And uh, am I the monster, M-I-C, am I the monster, Tanin, that you keep me under guard? So these are just some of the different ideas there. Then we get into Job 9, uh, 
God will not turn his back on anger. Beneath him crouches the helpers of Rahav. And then in Job 26, 12, he shatters Rahav. So there's the helpers or allies of the proud one, and then he is, the proud one is shattered. All of this depicts something uh, significant that is going on in the past related to these monsters, a time when there is a battle with God and a time where again and again God has to control the power of these demonic forces as this is stated in uh, Psalm 74, 12 through, through 15. Now we come to Isaiah 51, 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? So these last two lines are parallel to one another. The arm that represents the power of God that cut Rahab is parallel to wounded the serpent. So here, Rahab and Tanin are, um, are synonymous. They are connected to one another. I want to skip down a couple of verses to... Ezekiel 29.3, we referenced this earlier, where God addresses Ezekiel, speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the river. So there's a connection there that he is the, the Tanin, or the great monsters, and that connects it so that when we come to Psalm 89.11 and uh, Psalm 89.12, Seems like I've lost a slide somewhere in here. We come to Psalm 89.10, and it references the defeat of uh, the defeat of Satan. Turn with me to Psalm 89. Uh, uh, excuse me, the defeat of Rahab in Psalm 89.10. You have broken Rahab in pieces. There's nothing there that necessarily connects it to Egypt, but it is a picture of the power, the one who is defeated, whose power is behind the Pharaoh. You have broken Rahab in pieces. So if we look at verse 9, you rule the raging of the Yom. With its waves rise, you stilled them. So that is a depiction of the chaos that's brought by this corporate entity of the sea, the, all of the demonic forces. You rule the raging of the sea, and you have broken Rahab in pieces. This, again, refers to something that has happened in the past. And you have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So this is not just an allusion to the Exodus event, which is where a lot of people will put this, but I think it is a reflection of the original satanic rebellion against God. There's nothing here that specifies that this is uh, at the time of the, of the Exodus. And when you get into the next two verses in Psalm 89, 11, and 12, we read, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. This is a direct allusion now to creation. So the context seems to favor creation, not 
the time of the Exodus event, that God controls the heavens and the earth that he created and that he controls it and keeps it protected from the forces of Satan. Uh, The world in all of its fullness, you have founded them. The emphasis throughout this whole section of this uh, appeal to God to fulfill the promise of the Abrahamic covenant is to go back and show God's power in the past and how he has destroyed the forces that would attack and seek to destroy what God created and that now God will uh, exercise that power in favor of Israel. So the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world in all its fullness, you founded them. The north and the south, you have created them, and then uses Tavor and Hermon. These are two well-known mountains in the north of Israel. Mount Hermon is the northernmost uh, peak in Israel. It's right on the border with Syria. They have a nice ski slope up there. If you want to go there and go skiing in the winter, it has snow up there uh, during the winter months. That's not something you typically associate with Israel, especially if you've been down in the more southern areas. But this is uh, uh, the northernmost border, and Tavor is located down not just a little bit uh, east of Nazareth. It's got a funny shape to it. It's the name that's been applied to a uh, urban assault weapon, the Tavor, that is popular among the uh, troops of the IDF. But here it represents just Israel, the land that God has given them. The north and the south, you created them. Tavor and Hermon rejoice in your name so that you, it's an allusion to the fact that God controls the history of Israel. And then we come to verse 13. You have a mighty arm. Again, this emphasizes God's omniscience. Strong is your hand and high is your right hand. These are metaphors that emphasize God's omnipotence and power over anything that opposes him. So when we go back and we look at verses 6 through 13, we see this emphasis on God's power and control of anything that opposes us, anything that opposes his plan, that uh, he is in control of the forces of evil, he is in control of Satan, he has defeated them in the past, he will defeat and destroy them in the future. So when we look at that whole imagery that comes to play by using the the, uh, metaphor, you have broken Rahab in pieces, it pulls all of that together. Yet, what happens is because of the English translation, it looks like Rahab, people think it's talking about uh, the prostitute in Joshua 2, and because they don't understand the significance of Leviathan, and so often these things are confused in translation, you miss the whole point of what's being said here. And it should give us tremendous confidence that no matter what we face, no matter what Satan has in mind, no matter what... uh, agenda the demons have in mind, God is more powerful, and he's the one who protects us. And so all of this stuff that you see that goes on today about exorcism and many other things, it's just, it just mysticism and paganism. Uh, frankly, it has nothing to do with the biblical view of Satan and the demons who are held at bay. God protects us. He keeps us from the evil one. 
That's the promise uh, in the New Testament and he keep in in first john and he provides for us and so we can trust in him to bring about his plan and his purpose now next time we'll start making progress as we move through psalm 89 now that we have finished this look at the sea monsters that god that represent the demons and satan and the demonic forces and we'll move forward in our further understanding of the demonic i mean of the uh, davidic covenant. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at this study, one that few people ever engage in, trying to put together all these different passages to understand what you are communicating through the use of these uh, common metaphors that were part of the culture, part of the language at the time the Bible was written, that communicated to the original audience, but doesn't communicate so well to us today. Help us to understand these things and that this will give us great confidence to trust you no matter how dark the days, no matter how difficult the times, no matter how we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we know that you are in control and we can trust you and your power is greater than all the forces of evil and all the corruption of sin in this world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.